The most powerful thing for me about the strike has been what it is like to have honest conversations with my peers. Hello, and welcome to Art Restart, where we explore how artists are reinventing their fields and building a new landscape for the arts. I'm Piercarlo Talenti, the producer and editor of this podcast, which is brought to you by the Thomas S. Keenan Institute for the Arts at the University of North Carolina School of the Arts. In this episode, we'll be speaking with screenwriter, playwright, and essayist Dorothy Fortenberry. So in our last episode, we spoke with Charles Andrew Gardner about the aims and impact of the current sag after strike. Well, in this episode, Dorothy will explain what's at stake in the Writers Guild strike, which is now over four months old and sadly shows no signs of ending anytime soon. When the strike began in early May, Dorothy was in the middle of promoting an Apple TV Plus miniseries titled Extrapolations, on which she'd worked as executive producer and writer. As a result, she had to cancel all appearances relating to the show, which was especially disappointing to her given that it was the first major scripted TV show about climate change. Instead, she braved the blistering heat of summer in Burbank, California, and started walking the picket lines. Her TV producing and writing credits also include the acclaimed Hulu series The Handmaid's Tale and The 100 for the CW Network. Her work on The Handmaid's Tale earned her not only multiple Emmy nominations, but also a Producers Guild Award, as well as a Writers Guild Award. Her plays have been performed all over the country, including at the sadly now defunct Humana Festival of New American Plays in Louisville, Kentucky, I Am a Theater in Los Angeles, and the Red Fern Theater Company in New York City. Dorothy spoke to me from her home in Burbank. I began by asking her to explain fundamentally what's at stake for writers in this strike. I think the question is, is writing a job or is it a gig? And I think this idea that you can have a career, you can have a job where, yeah, you're always applying to the new things and sometimes they cancel your show, but you can build a life and some sense of stability is really rare in a lot of industries. I think, you know, 50 years ago, 70 years ago, all kinds of industries looked like this. You could have a family that was supported by somebody who had a unionized job and that person had a reason to believe that they could keep working that job and continue to sort of provide this lifestyle. And so many other industries that has collapsed and what is left is, you know, you can do this hustle over here, you can do that hustle over there, but you're always just scrambling for you know, the next bit of cash. And there's no sense that this is a decades long commitment. There's not like, I have a pension who has a pension, you know, I have a pension. I, I have these very old fashioned things um, that I'm very grateful for. And what I would like other people to understand is if we are able to make this a kind of job where you can depend on it and you can depend on some relationship to your employment and build a life from that. There's no reason that should be only for us. That should be for everybody. You know, all 
of the jobs in television, almost all of the jobs in television are union jobs. And we live in a very unionized world where the people that we're interacting with on set have some expectation of labor protections, of health insurance, of, you know, minimums. And I wish that people would see from this, that this is something that brings us a lot of real tangible benefits. And if we aren't able to hold on to these things, if writing becomes another thing that you do one off for a minute for, you know, someone Venmoing you and then it's over, it really limits who can do that job and what kind of life they can have. And do you think in it would affect the quality of what's created? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I think the ability to have trust and confidence and a long creative relationship will always make work that feels better, that feels richer, that you can watch over time. I think that's definitely true. And I think also, if writing is a career that is able to you know, provide for people, then you get a wider range of perspectives. You can get all kinds of people. If this is something that people are just doing as a hobby, then you're going to get a lot of TV shows about like how hard it is to have a trust fund. That's not like going to be good for the quality of the shows. You want all kinds of people from all kinds of backgrounds to be able to tell stories. And that requires a certain, you know, level of stability of employment. I want to talk about this, I think, it's pretty remarkable career you've crafted for yourself, not only as a TV writer, but also as a playwright. When you were first starting out, let's say when you were about to leave graduate school, what did you imagine your career would look like? And since then, now that you're on the picket lines, what what do you wish you'd known at the time that might have been helpful? Oh, man. I mean... So I graduated right in the middle of the 2008 financial collapse. Um, <laughs> so the first thing is that I had imagined a career uh, where there wasn't a global financial collapse. <laughs> and I was, I was getting an MFA in playwriting. And I didn't have, I think, a delusional sense of the career possibilities for playwrights. But I think I had a sense that there were career possibilities for playwrights, certainly and especially within academic institutions. So my expectation in graduate school was that I would apply for jobs, try to get a job teaching undergrad, teaching at a grad school, and that I would make a life within, within an academic institution. And then I graduated and there were no jobs. Um, like like those, those jobs just didn't exist anymore. There, there were no listings. And so all of the work that I had done and the workshops I had gone into about how to prepare your CV and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. It just you mean specifically matter. for academic careers? Exactly. Like I feel I like see. I had gotten a lot of prep on sort of here's how to have an academic career. And then they all kind of went up in the air at the moment that I arrived on the scene. So I had to do something else. And I did a couple of different things kind of all over the place, but ended up in TV. And I think the moment I ended up in TV was kind of the inverse of the moment I graduated. So the moment I graduated felt like a historically terrible time to be entering a labor market, specifically 
sort of arts education. It just, it, it felt very grim. Conversely, when I started doing television in the early 20 teens, there was a lot of excitement. There was a lot of enthusiasm. Things were just kind of opening up and there was a real sense of like, oh, we could have more shows. We could have more different kinds of shows. We could have lots of cool things could be on TV. And looking back on it now, I feel very grateful that that was the moment that I entered. It was pure luck. I had no crystal ball. I had no way of knowing, but I was able to enter the business at a moment when people felt excited to meet me, you know, that people felt like, and not just me, I mean, people felt excited to meet anybody. There was a real enthusiasm about new stories, this kind of only IP, only pre-awareness, only stories that we know we already know hadn't really crested yet. So it was, it was fun. It was, it was fun to be taking meetings where people seemed grateful to meet me and interested in the idea that I might have new stories to tell. So I just happened to totally coincidentally show up in the television world at a time where there was an expansion going on. There was an expansion in the number of jobs and also in the kinds of stories people wanted to tell. It was the rise of streaming and and limiteds and you could do fewer episodes and you didn't have to have an idea that necessarily seemed like it would generate 200 iterations. And that had sort of been the previous mandate of television was, you know, okay, you have an idea, but can it be on the air for seven years, you know, 24 times a year, because that's how this economic model is built. The economic model is built that it really only starts to be very profitable in syndication. And it seemed for a little bit like, oh, there's this different economic model and and you don't have to have an idea that reaches a lot of people and you can have an idea that reaches a couple people. But it was it was just pure luck that that's, you know, the year that I walked in the door. And so how has your understanding of the economic model changed in intervening years since you entered television? Totally. I mean, I think what's tricky is that a lot of the enthusiasm for this new streaming paradigm has really dimmed as we've seen that there aren't the protections for writers and actors getting paid in the same way. There aren't the residuals, there aren't the kind of, you know, proportional compensation. If you have a hit, if you end up being in a really big breakout, they don't tell you the numbers. You know, the the Nielsen's are public. Anybody can go into the physical newspaper and look at the Nielsen's and go, oh, you know, this show got this many viewers last night. And that empowers the creators of the show and the actors of that show to be able to say, well, look here, I'm pointing at a number, (laughs) you know, this many people watch the show. I can work backwards and say, well, if this many people watch the show and this is what you sell advertising rates for, this is how much money you made last night. Now, let me figure out how much money I made based on this thing that was on the air. But because streamers keep all of that data to themselves, there's no way of knowing whether you're on a hit, not a hit. If you're on a hit, you can't argue for more money. And I think the short episode order at first felt exciting because you're like, oh, you could have a kind of a weird idea. You know, you could have an idea that no one necessarily wants to go there for 200 episodes, but yeah, for eight. Okay, cool. 
But what the streamers have found is that you can stretch those eight episodes over several years. And what it means is that the person who's making it is making much, much less money because even if they're being paid per episode, you know, that stretches out over time. And then the other writers are now being brought in for these tiny little bits of time, you know, two weeks, four weeks, six weeks. And unless you're someone who can string together a lot of little rooms, which is hard, it's hard to get those jobs in the first place. It's hard to get those interviews in the first place. You're not working enough to pay your rent, make your health insurance minimums, keep the lights on. So you can get these little sort of snippets of a job, but they're not a real job. You yourself had planned to enter academia, but for so many theater writers, for so many playwrights, TV can be a path to a comfortable middle-class life. Absolutely. And I know that you have hired a lot of playwrights to work on shows. I was looking at yep. who was in Extrapolations. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Who's who of great theater writers. Yeah, it's amazing. It's amazing. So I'm also thinking that the stakes are high for a lot of playwrights in the strike as well. Yes. Yes. And I think for playwrights, there are a couple of different paths depending on, you know, who somebody is and what kind of life they want to live. But having some kind of relationship to television and film really does ease the anxieties of being a playwright just financially. Like it, it just can give you a little bit of a cushion. It can give you a little bit of predictability. And again, the health insurance, it's no joke. All four members of my family are on the Writers Guild health insurance. And that matters a ton in our daily lives that I can, you know, take them to the doctor. So yeah, I think with the strike, because of the explosion of shows, there were just more shows and more shows and more shows every year. I think it gave a lot of playwrights an entry point and an ability to try it out. But I think it also started turning into something that was a lot of work and also for less money and less stability. So I have I have friends who are playwrights who have only done mini rooms. They've never been on a real season of a television show that, you know, goes for nine months. They've just done these kind of like six weeks here, six weeks there. And that's not nothing, but it's not necessarily enough to qualify for the health insurance or to qualify for the pension. And it, it is a much more of a of a gig option. You know, I'm thinking about the history of other labor unions who have really worked to protect their workers from the effects of mechanization, robotization, and in no small measure have kind of lost many of those battles. In terms of the negotiations that are going on regarding the use of AI, how hopeful are you that you're going to be able that the union is going to be able to protect the writer's IP and the writer's livelihood. Yeah. I'm nervous just because I know I don't know what's going to happen. I do think having the actors join us was really encouraging on this front because I think the AI question is one where the actors and the writer's incentives are very aligned. And I think probably for everybody on set who does something that could theoretically be replicated. I mean, editors, I'm sure they're going to teach an AI how to edit. Just any of, you know, maybe not, you know, people who are physically hanging lights with their hands, but 
anybody who's doing anything where they're at a computer or they're having their face or their body on screen is at risk. So I think the fact that all of us understand we're facing the same threat makes me more encouraged. I think if the actors had settled for a deal that did not incorporate AI protections, I would feel worse because I'd be like, oh no, you know, they gave away the store. It's going to make it harder for us. So that's what gives me hope is that I think we all see that that struggle is going to be one for all of us. But, you know, I think you're right. Looking at a historical sweep, technological innovation almost always is used as a wedge to disempower and harm workers, at least originally. You know, anytime anything's developed, the first thing is, oh, good, now we can get around these pesky, you know, union contracts and now we can get around these pesky labor laws. So will we we be able to hold the line, push back, think about protections? I hope so, because this isn't just a writer question or an actor question. This is doctors and lawyers and journalists and teachers and you know, CPAs. And I think a lot of people who have jobs are going to face some sort of existential threat from AI. And I hope that being out there in the public, being very visible, being very upset about this, we're kind of waving a flag for a lot of other industries to say, hey, this is coming for you. And the only way that you're going to be able to resist it or make sure it's incorporated in a way that doesn't destroy your industry is if your workers are united front. There is nothing that one individual is going to be able to do to, you know, buck the onslaught of AI, but a unified collection of workers can do a lot. Is there anything you're learning from this labor action in television that you think is applicable to the world of theater? Yeah, I think... The most powerful thing for me about the strike has been what it is like to have honest conversations with my peers. There's been an incredible amount of sharing, just really open, clear, vulnerable sharing of information, practical information, tangible information, and then also emotional information. How are we all doing? That is something that I think social media mimics but distorts. So social media makes it really easy to fire off something in a bout of rage or call somebody out or tell everyone you're really sad. Um, Social media makes it very easy to sort of show the shiniest possible version of your life. And like, here you are all dressed up. And I mean, I've done this too, you know, la la la, everything's delightful. You know, look at this nice shiny surface. And being on the picket line, being in physical, actual, real space with people, walking for hours where there's nowhere else you can or need to get to. You're not, you know, feeling the time pressure of, you know, I've got to wrap this conversation up. People have just been letting it all hang out in a way that I think is very valuable to us as workers and us as a guild. When we're by ourselves when we're individuals, if something bad happens to us at work or if we feel mistreated or unfairly compensated or whatever it is, there's a real tendency to blame yourself and then also not want to 
necessarily broadcast it because you're broadcasting that someone didn't think you were worthy of you know more money, more respect, whatever. So there's a lot of sort of private pain and private shame and negative experiences that people have been walking around with by themselves. And to be in physical space, talking about them while also doing something about it. Like that's the other thing about the strike that I think has been so empowering. And I I would hope could be a model for theater or anybody else. It's also not just kvetching. Like kvetching is beautiful, love to kvetch, but like by the act of striking, we are very clearly saying we will not stand for this. We are going to do something else. We are demanding something better. So it's not only venting, it's we believe a better world is possible and we are taking literal steps to ensure that better world can be realized. And so I would wish for for playwrights, for anyone in the theater space to be able to have honest, vulnerable, you know, name names, name numbers, those real conversations with people but then also try to imagine like, what could we do differently? How could we make it change? Not just sort of end in like, and that was terrible and now I'm sad, you know, but, but what are we doing to actually make the better version of this that we believe is possible because we believe in it and we love it and we're not quitting and we're not leaving. We're trying to make it better. Hmm. In the world of TV or theater or both, is there something outside of what's being negotiated for in the contract? Is there something that you'd love to see, a, a way of doing things that you'd love to see changed or reinvented? I think there's a big culture shift that's already happening. And I think making it you know, more real and more secure around a culture of kind of macho-ness, which I, not gendered in any particular way, but I think in... Hollywood certainly right now, there can still be a valorization of suffering. So, you know, if you get people together, they can tell stories about like, you know, I wrote the script when I, you know, my leg was broken. And well, I wrote the script when my appendix was falling out, you know, and there's this desire to prove how tough you are by how many painful or difficult things you didn't let bother you. And I think shifting that to a culture of like, what if you didn't work 20 hours a day? <laughs> like, what if, what if the bragging is like, I worked eight hours a day and then I ate a reasonable meal and got a good night's sleep. And I still made this work of art. That's good. I think that would be exciting to me as someone who, you know, I would like to eat decent food and get decent rest. But I also would like to, you know, if I ever have a show, I will be the boss of a bunch of people. I will be the employer of a bunch of people. And I would like to have a workplace where people feel healthy, where people feel like they don't have to do these kind of macho acts of self-destruction. But I also would want to feel like that would be supported by the industry and that I wouldn't be this total weirdo who is saying like, you know, yes, go to the dentist. You know. Yeah, especially supported, this is true in theater as well as TV and film, supported as a parent, right? Totally, totally. And I, you know, when I started out in television, I did get the advice to lie about having kids. Um, really? Yeah, yeah. Because somebody said, look, don't just 
don't tell them in the meeting, wait till your contract is done. Because they'll assume your attention will be divided. Exactly. They'll assume mm-hmm. that you won't be available and they'll assume that you won't want to do it. And, you know, I even, I went to, this is a while ago, but I went to a writer's guild event that was about moms in the industry. But the whole thing kind of turned into a one-upsmanship of people telling like, you know, well, I was doing a rewrite while I was in active labor and like, well, I was producing this episode while I was having a C-section. Well, you know, it's that and macho like, thing you were talking is that about. Macho? It was a bunch of yeah. women being incredibly macho to each other about how hard and they no, had worked. I didn't have an epidural. That exactly, kind of thing, right? exactly, exactly. And, you know, well, I was on set and, you know, nine of my organs failed and three of my children fell off the roof and I kept going. And I was kind of like... I mean, this is sort of a conversation about being moms within the industry, but we're also just kind of like bragging about our pain and how much we can tolerate. And I don't know that this kind of of sharing contains within it the seeds of anything better to be like, and then I took, you know, six weeks off and let all, you know, my insides heal or, you know, my kid was going through a tough time and here's how I navigated being there for them as they needed extra care or extra support. I think we're in the middle of this shift. I think people younger than me are, you know, the ones who are really bringing it about, but I am grateful for and excited to see that happen because I think it's a prerequisite to having a long career. Like I keep talking and thinking about how do we make this something that's not just a job, but is a lifetime. And you can, you know, destroy yourself physically, mentally, spiritually for one job, but you can't do that over and over and over again. You'll get wrung out, you'll get destroyed. And the industry as it's constructed doesn't care. You know, they'll find another one. Okay. You know, you're a mess. You're a desiccated husk of a person. Cool. There'll be somebody new coming down the pike. But for you as the person, I think if you want to be able to continue to access the emotions and the creativity that allow you to do this work, you also want to be taken care of as a human being. If you'd like to learn more about Dorothy and read a longer version of this interview, in which she discusses how different writing for network TV is from streaming, for instance, I had no idea, just head to uncsa.edu slash artrestart. We really rely on you to find new listeners, so if your podcasting app has a way for you to rate or comment on a podcast, won't you please do so? And if you'd like us to profile an artist changemaker you love, just let me know. You can find me on Instagram at PC Talenti. Our theme music is by Shanghai Restoration Project. I'm Piercarlo Talenti, and on behalf of the Thomas S. Keenan Institute for the Arts, thanks for listening. <laughs>